That's a pretty live conversation, I think, for many of us. Would you agree? Whether you are um, a parent or a friend or a teacher or a colleague, I want to ask the light crew for a moment. Can I go sit in Susan's chair? So to sit in this seat, um, I'm wondering if even some, someone here in the room, up in the balcony, looking to our online community, and I'm wondering uh, how many of us actually have been in this chair or actually are in the chair right now. And you're doing perhaps what is the popular word right now, you're deconstructing a bit. Or everything that you were raised in, you're starting to go, hmm. Or the things you passionately believe, you're starting to go, I don't know. Or, or, or maybe for you, it's just, you know, it's not agnosticism, you're, you're just not sure. It's outright atheism, meaning I, I'm, I'm, I actually think I'm convinced in what I don't believe any longer. And maybe your road, uh, and I would, I would assume. And, and by the way, I just, today I want to talk to um, the person sitting in this seat, to the Susans of the world. And I want you to say it's super okay if that's you. What I love about this church, what I love about the work that we get to do at Shoal Creek is the mission is to make Jesus accessible. I, I love it for its profundity and I love it for its sim, simplicity and yet it's super hard because we make Jesus inaccessible all the time. And to sit in the seat maybe you got here because... Um, it was more of a cerebral challenge. How do you live in a material world but base your entire life in an immaterial thing, such as faith in God? Or maybe it's the hypocrisy of people who believe something but live it totally different. Or maybe it's just trying to figure out evil and pain and how could a loving God allow such things. Or maybe for you it's like, what's happened in the last five or six years with this weird Christian nationalism, like political thing? I don't even recognize it anymore. Or maybe it's the historical atrocities. Things have been done in the name of Jesus. Slavery, inquisitions, systemic abuses, power plays and the like. I don't know what got you in this seat, but I'd love just to have a conversation because you and I might um, find ourselves at two radically different places like Susan did with her dad. You might look at me as someone who is a person of faith, faith in Jesus, and you might go, I just don't get it. I can't fathom how someone would premise their whole life on a fictitious God as some form of an emotional crutch and worse, maybe to pay penance and uh, live in bondage for the rest of your life don't get it. And that would be maybe the more hardcore view of atheism, to which I would reply uh, two things. One is, well, you could be right. You might be right about that. I honestly don't know. And the second thing I would say is, I actually can't fathom not having God in my life. And here we find ourselves maybe in, in two different places, sitting in two different chairs, and yet I actually believe there's more commonality between you and me for Susan between she and her father than might 
um, you might readily think. I want to talk about that a little bit today. But first, I want to make it worse. I want to pile on. I want to, I want to, um, I want to tell you something that I don't like about my tribe, Christians, in addition to everything else we've, we've already mentioned. Can we just make it worse before hopefully it gets better? Sure. Yeah. Well, I know you're already in a funk because the Jayhawks won last night and, you know, and everything else. So I, I, I knew, and that your applause earlier was really shocking given just the mood of Missouri right now. Anyways, I live south of the river. Sorry about that. Uh, here, here's the thing that, um, that I've been thinking about that Erwin McManus in this book, The Genius of Jesus, has really brought to the forefront, and I think he's right. What drives me crazy about people like me is the incessant need to be right. The incessant need to be right. Right about our theology, right about our politics, right about uh, our view on life, right about our view on sexuality, right about our view on family, right? I mean, you just fill in the blanks. Our need to be right. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, a person of faith, You might be going, where is this going, right? Because sound doctrine leads to a sound life and all that. I'm actually not disputing that whatsoever. Believe that deeply. However, what I want to talk about is the posture, the posture and the emphasis by which I live my life. Because this spirit of rightness can get pretty ugly. By the way, what do you think about this new whiteboard? Is this not like the coolest thing ever? brand new. I get to unveil it today. All right. That my incessant need to be right does things. It does things in relationship with others. It does does things over social media. Um, And I'll get us started, but I'd like to just hear in one one word, not like monologue from you, but just one word, like when somebody is pushing their rightness there's certainty to the point of absurdity. Where does that go? And I'll just say, there is a spirit of arrogance. Would you agree? All right, what else would you say? Pride. Pride. Really good. What else? Superiority. Superiority. Fantastic. Now I have to spell it. <laughs> I think we did okay. What else? Yeah, power. All right. We could go on, right? We could go on. I would add it's polarizing. And it leads to this word or phrase. It's a, two, it's a two-part word with a hyphen. Self, what? Righteous. Yeah. You know what's really uh, oxymoronic about this phrase, self-righteous. Do you know what righteous means in the Bible? It's a whole nother talk. We think it means being right about everything, right? And living this pietistic code of conduct kind of thing. Right at its core throughout the whole Bible means right relationship. Now, I'd love to talk about that another time. Uh, We could unpack this word both in the Hebrew and the Greek, but I won't. But look at the oxymoronic 
self-righteous. If righteous is about being in right relationship with God, with others, actually with all creation, and even right within myself, a therapist would call that being fully integrated as a human being. If that all requires relationship, how is it even possible to do that by myself? Because my rightness pushes me towards isolation. It polarizes, and it leaves me, as the song said earlier, on my high horse. Others are going, I'll take the high road, uh, but you just take the lonely road by yourself. Are you with me in the problem with, in the posture of our hearts, trying to be right all the time? Everybody with me on board? Online community? Uh, Shoal Creek anywhere? Just go ahead and post in the chat. Start the conversation. Justin will be right there with you. Now, where do you think this comes from? Where did it come from for Susan's dad, who couldn't handle the conversation, so he walked out of the room. Well, I'd say, if we go to that kind of subterranean place underneath, it starts with our own uncertainty about such things. Either we haven't really looked in to these, you know, to, to, to these beliefs, to the, the foundation of our beliefs. We really haven't battle-tested it. Maybe we've just been given it. Maybe we've just been told it. Or maybe we have processed it, and we've, we've found there's a lot more gray than everything being black or white. And we have this unsettling uncertainty and we feel like in order to follow God, we need foolproof certainty at all times. And what's underneath the uncertainty? I would say it's insecurity. That we come into these conversations being afraid of getting exposed, of having something be kind of turned upside down, or going, oh, I'm going to be forced to look at the new light. At the bottom of it all, if you can still read down this low, is fear. And actually, we talked about this last time, what happens when we're afraid? Our, our uh, involuntary response of fight, flight, freeze, or feign. We, we'll fake it, right? Or we'll just bury our heads in the sand, we'll be paralyzed by it, we'll run away from it. That's typically what I do. That's my modus operandi. Or we'll fight and some of you said things like powers, the, uh, we would add control. This is not what we call good news, people. These are all the ways that we can make Jesus in our lives inaccessible to someone sitting in Susan's chair going, if you just talk to me, I actually really want to know these things. Now, the good news the good news is that the Bible does not command us to be right. You ever thought about that? The Bible has never commanded us to win the day. You could say that we end up um, maybe being right and wrong all at the same time. Maybe right about a conviction, wrong about our approach. The Bible allows plenty of room for this kind of gray and fuzzy. Doesn't command us to be right. Uh, look with me here, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about this. He says, look, about whole faith, about 
the faith enterprise. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. You've got to understand in Paul's day, mirrors were not as crystal clear. Mirrors were dark and fuzzy and, and smoky. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What's he saying there? He's saying, well, a couple things. He's going, look, this side of the heavenly realm, no one is going to have this perfectly figured out. Certainty isn't actually possible. God is the only one who has certainty. I love how C.S. Lewis, I'm going to loosely quote this. He says, look, there is such a thing as absolute truth, not arguing that point. Um, and we should all be seeking after that absolute truth. It just ha- so happens that some are closer to it than others, but no one has a full corner on its market. And I love that because it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater saying, oh, well, we can just make up our own truth and relativity. He's not saying that. He's saying there is this, there is this capital T truth, but none of us have it fully figured out. We are not commanded to be right. Are we commanded to, to grow in our understanding of uh, what is true? Are we commanded to have clear, sound thinking? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. But, and this leads to the second thing, actually what the Scriptures command us to do is not to be right, but to be good, to be good. And I think this is the commonality intersection point, that if you're sitting there going, man, I don't know about this Christian crap, I think here's a commonality for us. I want you to look at a, this is a, a paramount passage in, um, in, in the Old Testament, and it comes from a prophet, a guy who heard the heart of God and put God's heart to words. His name is Micah, and he says this, he has shown you, O mortal. I love that. If there's any commonality we can start from, it's the fact that we're all mortals. Can we agree on that? We are alive now, we will die. We are mortal, not immoral. He has shown you, O mortal, what is what? What is good? Not what is right, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Now he's gonna unpack what good is. It's to act justly, it's to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So if we come over here and we go, okay, we've got, we've got two things we're looking at. Here's right, not going to get us very far. Might end up winning a battle and losing the war. But here's good. And when that word for good is used, it's actually, in the Hebrew, it's tob. You know what it means? It means words like savory sweet, delightful. Isn't that cool? And then he goes on to say, it's things like acting justly. Here I won't, ooh, just learn something. That doesn't work. All right. Justice. Mercy. And walking humbly, so we'll just say humility. All of this is under good. Now I know justice can be a trigger word for many in in uh, in the Christian tribes, and uh, to that I would just say get over it. <laughs> it's a biblical word. It's all over the scriptures. 
God made things beautiful, good, and very good, and sin entered the world and messed it all up, jacked it up, twisted it all around. And what you get to do is be uh, co-creators with God, collaborating with Him to take where there are broken things, we get to make them whole. Where there are twisted things, we get to make them straight. Where they're sick, we get to bring people and things and systems and cultures back into health. It is a deeply biblical, beautiful thing. And when God says, when he created this, and he says, that's good, that's good, that's very good, we're talking about this kind of good. And if you're in the place right now where you're just like, I don't know, man, I'm deconstructing, or I don't know what I think, or maybe you belong to an atheist society, I would love to have a conversation and ask you this question on behalf of me and those that are, you know, in my community, believers. I'd love just to say, if we did this, if we did Micah 6.8, and if we chose to no longer just try to be right, but we actually lived out good, And if we joined you in places of seeing from a deep place of conviction, we might not even come at it from the same perspective. There might be some things you call good that I don't call good. That's all right. Let's just put that aside. But there's plenty of areas, caring for the poor, caring for our creation, the dignity of every human being, human trafficking, Food insecurity. I mean, there's plenty of good. And by the way, let me just say this about atheists. I haven't, like there's been atheists I've met that I haven't liked. I'm just going to be honest. Just like there's lots of Christians I've met that I haven't liked. But I've never met an atheist that didn't care about good. They're good people. Wanting to do good things. Coming at it from a humanistic perspective, meaning from the good within, I'm going to go do good Uh, outside, and yet I just know here's a commonality. So if we did this, if we pursued justice, if we pursued forgiveness and grace and mercy, and maybe most importantly, if we actually walked humbly through our lives, forget for a moment that it says with our God, but if you just saw humility in us, would that make Jesus more accessible? Maybe let me talk to the believers for a moment. I'm guessing you know somebody who sits in Susan's chair. If we did that, do you think that would make Jesus more accessible for your friend, for your son, for your grandson, for your colleague? I believe so. That's why I love this this book by Erwin McManus And this quote, he says this, being right is all about you. Doing good is about others. When the right is at war with the good, always choose the good. I love that. Being right is about about you. Doing good is about others. When these two seem to be conflicting with one another, like choose good. And by the way, that's what Jesus did all the time. Jesus actually deconstructed a lot of rightness. If you go just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, you'll 
you'll find that this, like Jesus, it almost seemed like he just loved to upset the rightness of things and would choose the good. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to look at this moment where it happens, but he's in the middle. Let me just give you the context. He's just in the middle of the Pharisees. Those are the religious elites. They're like following around. They got like binoculars on Jesus, and Jesus is walking through a wheat field with his disciples, and they just want to catch him in being not right and being wrong. And it happened to be on the Sabbath, and so it leads to this great conversation where Jesus is continually choosing good, and in the kind of a climax moment, Matthew chapter 12, I want you to look at it with me here. It says, going on from that place, Jesus just had kind of a mic drop moment, it was awesome. He then went into their synagogue, now he's in their church, and there's a man there with a shriveled hand. Now, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful, insert, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? See, there are all these kinds of laws. Jews had 613 laws that they, that they um, kind of extrapolated that are in the Old Testament, and then they built laws around the laws, and then they built more laws around those laws. It's like I went to a Christian college, and there was this law, there was this right thing, which was don't have sex with, you know, people in your dorm room. That was the law. Have I shared this before? I feel like I have, because I'm having that same feeling of awkwardness right now. (laughs) Well, so at a Christian school, what do you do to keep Uh, teenagers with raging hormones from having sex in a dormitory. You create laws around that. The biblical law is like don't, you know, don't have have sex before you're married, all that. But so then they said, okay, well, girls can only be in boys' dorms and vice versa on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And when they are, the door has to be at a 45-degree angle. So you could imagine those who were all about rightness, they're walking down the halls going, that's a 32-degree angle right there. That's totally wrong, <laughs> right? We start judging about the laws beyond the laws, beyond the laws. This was happening on the Sabbath as well. There was all this rightness built up upon rightness, built up upon rightness. And they're, 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 they're like licking their chops, the Pharisees. They're like, oh, here it goes. Man with a shriveled hand. Jesus sees him. He can't help himself. We know he's going to do something. This is going to be good because you can't do good things on the Sabbath. So Jesus is asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he says to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, the day you're not supposed to do any kind of work, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do what? Good. Good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other hand. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Why? Because right here. These Pharisees, they walked around. They had this uncertainty. They, they, They had authority in a hierarchical sense, but they had no real influence on the people. They had their own uncertainties and insecurities, and they were totally afraid of losing their power and their control, and Jesus was such a threat to that. And Jesus just like cuts right through it. This is just the genius move of Jesus. Genius. 
He goes, let's quit talking about this, you guys. Let's do, let's do good. And when he uses that word good, it's kalos. There's another word for good, agathos, which means moral, ethical, and conduct. That's what agathos means. Guess what kalos means? The same equivalent word. It means winsome and lovely. How cool is that? Would you like to follow this kind of Jesus? See, I think that's what's gotten all confused. This is where I think the genius of Jesus has been lost. Is whether it's Susan who grew up in the church and just equated it with, with uh, personal hygiene, or you've equated it with rules. Maybe Jesus has been in your mind the way it was portrayed to you, the way that you've experienced him, is somebody who's just coming around wanting to dot your I's and cross your T's. It's all about rightness. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. And here's the tragedy. I think you'd really like them. I think, I think you'd really like this Jesus. The Jesus of 2,000 years ago. The Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. I mean, he'll offend you a bunch. He's like an equal opportunity offender. But I think you'll like him. You know why? Because he's an independent thinker. I think you'll like him because he's cavalier. I think you'll like him because he stands up to systems of power. I think you'll like him because he's an advocate for those far away and the disenfranchised. I think you'll, I think you'll really like him because he's radically inclusive. And he's a master deconstructor. I mean... Maybe this would be a challenge for you. Just go read through uh, one of the books. Like pick Mark, for example. One of, the, one of the first books of the New Testament. And just go look at the ways in which Jesus deconstructs bad theology, even bad, some bad politic. He de- deconstructs uh, their understanding what family looked like. He deconstructs tradition. He deconstructs everything. Not to lead to a place where many of us are finding ourselves in dead ends. Not to lead to anarchy or chaos or nihilism. That's where deconstruction, if left to our own devices, leads to a different form of self-righteous. It's just the unreligious version of it. Jesus deconstructs in order to make his Father more accessible to take the heart of his Father in heaven. And yes, we believe Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And in the one triune God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is wanting to make the true heart of God accessible. And so I think where this maybe leads us, this we could go on and have more conversation, but let me just bring it to a point of commonality, which is, I think if we could live more about good, we'd have a lot more intersection. I think if the posture of our hearts were less about rightness, I think it would open up more of what's winsome and lovely, delightful, sweet, and savory. 
And I think the opportunity for those of us who are believers is to ask this question. Where is my rightness getting in the way of right relationship? Where's the rightness in me getting in the way of right relationship, of doing good? It could be in a relationship right now. It could be in your marriage. You're, you're trying to be right. It could be um, with a colleague. It could be in an intellectual conversation about faith. It could be your alter ego online with your Twitter blasts. I think that's the work that my tribe needs to work on, if I could use that kind of language. My challenge for you, if you're in the place sitting in Susan's chair, is just check out Jesus. I think you'd really, really like him. I think he'd confound you and draw you in. You might just think he's crazy at times, and that's probably a good sign that you're following and starting to read and discover the real Jesus. And I would leave us maybe with a, with a question. The different part about good for a Christian than for an atheist is we both have to answer a question. They're just different. I, as a Christian, I have to answer the question, where does my good God come from? And I, honestly, I, I can't answer that. That's a big one. I, I don't know where someone who's always existed comes, like, exists out of nothing. I, I can't answer that. That's a tough one. We call that a hole in my swing. But I would say to you, if you're more in the place of a humanistic perspective, where does your good come from? Because you could look at me and say, yeah, see, that's why I don't believe in a good God. Like, who, who would, where does that come from? It comes from your imagination. But what I could say to you in this place is, where does your good come from? Well, that we can answer. From a Christian perspective, that we can answer. And it's right here, actually, from 600 years before. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. He has shown you. Who's doing the showing? Jesus. Jesus embodied that passage from 600 years before. He's, he's the fulfillment of it. How do we know what's good? What's our plumb line for good? How do we know what is sweet and savory and winsome and, and delightful? How do we know what it looks like to live out justice, to care for the prisoner, for the sick, for the naked, for the hungry, for the thirsty? Like, how do we? Because Jesus models that for us all the way to the point of him showing us by way of his death. With the trolley on the tracks and a divergent choice to make between a whole bunch of people on one and just one person on the other, God chose the one and it was his son. He chose good to the ultimate degree. And so I know uh, that a lot of questions are still left open. You might be saying, how could you? I can't fathom believing in a God that I can't see, touch, touch, hear. And I can't fathom not having God in my life because he's good. He's so good.